You're listening to a Church Doctor production. Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Is your church flourishing or is it dying? And no matter how you answer, ask the question, why? I'm Ken Hunter, the Church Doctor, founder of Church Doctor Ministries, excited to share this message with you about flourishing and dying churches. You know, from the beginning, Christians gathered together for worship. Believers gathered together for fellowship and received instruction and direction for outreach, for mission as well. They celebrated the Lord's Supper. They also sent out workers to plant other churches, sometimes nearby, often far away. This process reflects a movement that will continue until the Lord returns. You see, most churches reflect a life cycle. They are birthed and grow. Sometimes they multiply other churches. Over time, some churches start to decline. In some instances, they experience a comeback or a return to a thriving life. They experience growth. My first church in the U.S. was a church just like that. I pastored a church in the inner city of Detroit. Before I arrived, it had declined in the previous decade by 67%. It was a shadow of its former self. It was located in an area that was culturally changing from Anglo to African American. I wasn't prepared to know what to do, even though I had been through four years of college to study for the ministry, four years of seminary to get a master's degree in divinity, and three years of graduate school to get a Ph.D. in theology. You'd think I'd know something. But there I was in that declining church, and it wasn't long, and I was frustrated. So, I called some of the leaders of my denomination, and when I asked those leaders for guidance about how to turn around a church in that urban area, I was told, and I quote, we don't know how to help a church in that situation. We end up closing them. We have already closed several inner city churches in Detroit. I was devastated. If these guys don't know, where am I going to get help? But God had a plan. The challenges included a declining church that seemed to refuse to grow and neighbors that refused to come. Oh, we tried. But without success. The process drove me to continue my education by studying the discipline 
of missiology, even as I continued serving that church. The congregation, by God's grace and through the biblical teaching about mission, began to thrive in a very difficult situation. Today, that congregation, a few decades later, is a healthy, thriving, growing African-American church. Hundreds of believers pack the sanctuary for worship, now led by an African-American pastor. I visited there not long ago, and I didn't mention who I was and what my tenure had been there at that church. Without knowing who I was, the members made my experience one of the friendliest churches I have ever encountered. I was the only white guy in worship. The place was packed with about 350 people of all ages, many of them young families, a vibrant congregation, and, as I discovered, a two-and-a-half-hour worship. <laughs> I should have looked for the restroom first, <laughs> but I made it. Let me reflect with you for a few moments about churches around the world. As I started my career, it led me to help other churches in North America as the church doctor. I had the opportunity to also teach at pastor's gatherings around the world. And in these travels, I was invited to preach at numerous congregations on five continents, often with an interpreter. In my journeys, in my journeys, I also was able to visit a variety of other churches as a guest. During several trips, I had the opportunity to visit some of the most famous historic churches in Europe. I was fascinated by the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris long before the fire. One of my favorites in Germany is the cathedral at Cologne. The huge and somewhat different cathedral in Barcelona, Spain, is one of the most unusual church buildings I have ever seen in its architectural presentation. In England, I worshipped at Westminster Abbey. One of my other favorite London churches is St. Paul's Cathedral. Each of these historic sites of faith is still a functioning church. Yet, the faithful are few, while the tourists are many. Even the Sistine Chapel in Rome is primarily a historic site. All of this raises the question, what happened to the functioning church in so many places around the world? From a very different perspective, I have preached in numerous churches in Africa. For example, after teaching a week at one of our many conferences in Nigeria, I was invited to preach at a young church just a couple of years old. My wife and I was with me, and, and we were together for that trip. And so when we were picked up at the hotel, we were told that it was a new church. So I expected a relatively small group of worshipers, which was just fine. They were renting a former warehouse. 
Well, when we arrived, we were shocked by the few thousand people seated on benches for the three-hour worship service. The energy in that room was beyond description. With the service going on for so long, I asked the pastor, how long should I preach? I was prepared for 20 minutes, but I thought I could cut it short. He replied, oh, preach for an hour. They're used to an hour. On each trip we made to South Korea, I visited the Yoida Full Gospel Church, and each time I had introduced a few Americans who were with me to one of the largest Christian movements in recent history. The church is the size of an American football stadium with a roof. It fills all the seats for worship numerous times every weekend. It is a mind-boggling experience. Headsets are provided with interpreters in several languages. One of my favorite church experiences, however, was the Amazon region of Brazil. Manaus is a huge metropolitan city that is inaccessible by roads, yet there are thousands of vehicles on the city streets, all of those vehicles being shipped in by boat far up the Amazon River. Our daughter was with me for one of those trips. Our team provided a conference for pastors who came from all over the Amazon Basin. Many were from the city of Manaus, but most of them came by small boat from up and down the Amazon River. After the conference, our team boarded a boat that would take us up several villages where the small churches were established. After several days and numerous stops, we landed at a small village hidden deep within the jungle. It was Sunday, and I was asked to preach using my Brazilian interpreter, Everaldo, who has translated my sentences into Portuguese, which is the Brazilian language. As we made our way toward the church, we had to open a gate to a cleared area in the jungle that was fenced. I asked, why is there a fence around the church? Everaldo said, so the cows don't get out. I had, my next question was, why did they build a church in a cow pasture? He explained, they eat the jungle vegetation. If they didn't, in one or two weeks, you couldn't find the church. <laughs> As we approached this little church building, I discovered that I, it was elevated off the ground to protect worshipers from snakes. That's a good idea. It had a roof because in the jungle, in the rainforest, it rains every day, several times. The walls were just two-by-four studs. The seats were rough-sawn benches with no backs. And after the service began, Everaldo told me when it was time to preach. And as we stood up front, three feet away, there was a bare-breasted woman nursing her baby. Her other child, a toddler, laid on the floorboards and fell asleep. About five minutes into my sermon, the toddler wet his cloth diaper and a yellow stream was making its way to my feet. Wow, what an experience. <laughs> so let me ask, what is your worldview about church? <laughs> yeah, it could change. 
How do these stories impact your understanding about how to do church? All of my different real-life stories could go on and on, with churches in Scotland, Ireland, India, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Belize, Thailand, and Cambodia, even Eastern Orthodox churches in Russia, Kazakhstan, Romania, and Bulgaria, and most recently, stories of the Coptic Church in Cairo, Egypt. Explore with me the subject of form and substance. We begin by looking at your worldview. A worldview describes how you understand the world and the way the world works. When you travel and interact with people, it expands your worldview, even about the right way to do church. <laughs> Some elements of church are biblically non-negotiable. The truth of Scripture baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Trinity, salvation through Christ alone, discipleship, and all those other things that are non-negotiable. However, when worship intersects with a particular culture, other aspects of worship are negotiable for good reason. You must speak the language of the people you're trying to reach if you want to be effective. While content of faith is sacred and you can't change it, the packaging should fit the people you're trying to reach. That includes everything except the content. It explains why in Jesus, God showed up as a person, a divine human person. It reflects why missionaries like the Apostle Paul say things like, I have become all things to all people, that by any means some might be saved. 1 Corinthians 9:22 You see this is the difference between form and substance the substance of the christian faith must not change if it does the church dies on the other hand the form of delivery must change if it doesn't the church dies whole movements of faith have become sterile by watering down the substance the truth of scripture Likewise, many Christians have confused the substance with the form. Containers that no longer connect to the audience you are called by God to reach. Believers can easily get stuck in the way we've always done it and implode the faith movement. Remember the scribes and the Pharisees? Yep, that was their problem with Jesus. So let's focus on two great mission teachings. One is called contextualization, and the other is called syncretism. These are just two of my many favorite subjects when we teach in the videos in the Send Movement, training church people to be missionaries to their unchurched neighbors. When Jesus was born, God joined the context of his people. Jesus was a real man and real God. If he wasn't God, his mission wouldn't mean anything. If he wasn't man, no one would listen. The church leaders at your church can take that teaching to the bank. In mission school, they teach the fundamental concept of contextualization. The containers you share and used to share 
the unchanging truth about Jesus must be what they call indigenous to the people you're trying to reach. What does that mean, indigenous? You speak the language they understand, in ways they understand. So, if you want to die on the hill of words like thee and thou and thy, those who are already believers will love you for being warm and fuzzy to the way we've always done it. However, you will ultimately become missionally impotent. You will contribute to the decline of the Christian movement. It's not just words like thee and thy or thou or whatever. It's pews, not chairs. It's European-style buildings. It's dress codes, music styles, all the containers that make the real Jesus foreign or old or irrelevant to those who are far from God. And some of those casualties are likely to be your children and your grandchildren. When Jesus became flesh, he made an irrevocable statement about how the faith movement works, and it changes from culture to culture and generation to generation. Now, some Christians travel a different destructive path that likewise erodes the power of the Christian movement. This one is called syncretism. In an attempt to make Christianity easy for non-Christians, some people try to sync up with the culture in areas that conflict with the content Scripture clearly identifies as unchristian. As nations drift from authentic biblical teaching, some believe that part of the offensive elements of Scripture should be watered down or reinterpreted to sync up with the culture. And at first, it may appear effective. Christianity light may attract some, but lack the depth, and eventually it leads to shallow Christianity. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, is an offense by its own description. Christians are not called to be offensive, but God's truth cannot be compromised. Syncretism removes the backbone from the body of Christ, the church. The proper approach to contextualization without syncretism releases the power of the gospel. A great mission thinker once said, Methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change, principles never do. Contextualization is a mission principle demonstrated by Jesus who became flesh for us to recognize him. Syncretism is a method to try to soften the reality and the cost of following Jesus. And to understand the difference is a non-negotiable commitment to the truth of Scripture. You cannot improve on God's approach in Jesus. This is powerful for the way you do church. So look at yourself in the mirror. Put your church in the mirror. Ask this question, am I going to help my church flourish or will I contribute to its death? And just keep asking that question. 
You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Restoring Civility, Lessons from the Master, available at Amazon.com.